Hallelujah. Father, we read in your word about the adjectives that go on and on without even doing justice within the English English language to describe the great riches of your character, your attributes, your worth, your works. We hear wonderful. We hear counselor. We hear almighty God. We hear the scope of your power and as much as the governments, all government is on your shoulders. We read of your omniscience, your omnipotence. We read of your power to save and we hear of your righteous works. We hear of your judgments. We hear of the future that you've prepared for those that love you. We hear, Lord Jesus, from cover to cover the amazing works and the worth of our God. I pray as we take a few moments to read just a few of those words in the middle of this great work that you would communicate them, Holy Spirit, to our hearts to strengthen and encourage and embolden and deepen our faith in you. I pray that you would reveal, Lord Jesus, the mysteries of your holy word, that you would encourage and strengthen our soul by what we find, that you would give us a greater capacity in our heart to appreciate, in our mind to understand the glories of our God revealed in the pages of sacred scripture. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Amen. What a privilege to open to open God's Word together this morning, and the place I'll have you do that is Psalm 21 this morning. Our second Sunday of the month, our psalm series brings us to Psalm 21. The title is To the Choir Master, a Psalm of David. It's another worship song com- commissioned for a service not unlike this by Israel's greatest king, who himself represented the Messiah in his office, and also prophesied of the Messiah in his poetry, and who wrote of the connections between God's holy word and the purpose and his calling and anointing as king, as poet, as a worship author, and as a servant, a humble servant himself of God's great and glorious will, and as a prototype or as an archetype of what the Messiah would be later. So as we read in Psalm 21, I would invite you to follow along these 13 verses. We'll read them in their entirety, and then we'll seek to dig deeper into the understanding of what's contained. In Psalm 21.1, we read, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation the king, re- how greatly he exalts. Again, verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. For you met him with rich, you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Verse 7, for the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. And in verse 8, we read, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. 
You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. And finally, verse 13, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. We will sing and praise your power. The title of today's message is Theology and War. Theology and War. David, in this campaign, has likely received the answers to prayer in a warfare context that he had been praying in Psalm chapter 20. Do you remember last month these words? 20, chapter 20, verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. And remember this verse in particular, verse 5 of the previous psalm. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. So if this was the invocation, if this was the prayer that attended this military campaign where there was a cry for salvation to be delivered, for the people to be delivered from their enemies. Yes, physical, but this was more than that. It wasn't just warfare. It was theology. It was war against spirits and powers, principalities in heavenly places as represented, yes, by the physical conflict. But these psalms are much deeper than just a campaign between one nation that was arguing over a piece of bordering land with Israel or something like that. No, They had staked their claim that the glory of God and His kingdom purposes would be established in this land. And on that grounds, they justified this conflict, their just cause and conduct, to push forward the battle lines of this particular engagement. So when the king cries out and commissions this as a worship song for all the people, may we shout for joy over your salvation. Yes, it's deliverance from their physical enemies, but it's recorded for us here, and it was meant to be sung over and over again because it was a picture of God's salvation, His saving power, and victory over His enemies that went far beyond this incident and this single military campaign that might have given the initial motivation to write such a thing. As David prays for salvation in Psalm 20, he thanks the Lord for his salvation in Psalm 21. Verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. This received, experienced, and testified to salvation of the Lord is the theme of Psalm 21. Notice the closing verse, verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. The strength and power of our God that the people were praising, that the king was testifying to, that was the grounds for the just campaign and was the source or was the, and deserved the credit for their salvation. The strength and power of the Lord was the focus of their success. The strength of the king, or in the strength of the Lord, the king rejoiced and in his salvation he greatly exalted. And also in the course of the psalm, we see the scope of God's strength and we see the scope of His power. 
We see his power to save. And also in the second half of the psalm, we see his power to judge. Have you ever heard the lyrics lately, I should ask? I'm sure almost everyone in this room has heard the lyrics in the past at some point to a particularly moving song that is has become a patriotic icon in American folklore, if you will, or in our history. The song is titled, the song is titled, The Battle Hymn of the Republic. Glory, glory, hallelujah, and so on is, is the uh, way the chorus goes. I thought I'd read to you a few of the verses. We open up with the familiar, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. This is definitely a battle hymn. This is along the lines, especially in theme of Psalm 21, although the occasion might have been different. The words are very similar, and they're certainly, I think, inspired by Scripture and the truth of God, the entirety of God's power, and His power to save and His power to judge. For instance, second verse, I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His truth is marching on. And just to read one more verse that's particularly salient. I have read a fiery gospel writ in burnished rows of steel. As ye deal with my contenders, so with you my grace shall deal. And that's the word of the Lord saying to the people commissioned to war, as you, my people, deal with those who oppose me, my contemners, so with you my grace shall deal. I will show you my favor, even as I show judgment on yours and my shared enemies. Let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel. His truth is marching on. Those words are powerful. See if they ring familiar as we read once again, Psalm 21, 8. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of men. They plan evil against you. Though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight, you will aim at their faces with your bows, and then be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Or the similar glory, glory, hallelujah, His truth is marching on. Do you see that both songs, the one in, that David wrote, that the occasion of war allowed him the inspiration to write in Psalm 21, and the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which was written in, in, I believe, 1861. We've been studying it for devotions for our family right around the Civil War. They both had the same occasion in the physical to write words that would encourage their morale as to their campaign. One was a civil war in America, and the other was likely a war that David was fighting with neighboring countries. Now, the lyrics to both songs are very similar, and both are very clear-cut. Who can argue with the Lord's truth marching on 
or the idea that this hero, namely Christ, born of woman, has the power in his being and in his word commanded to crush the serpent with his heel and has most certainly done so on the cross and has commissioned his soldiers, his warriors, to fight the good fight of faith, to take up the helmet of salvation, to brandish the sword of the Spirit, to be clothed in all the Ephesians 6 armor, to do their master's bidding. Who can argue with that? But as we look back at the historical occasion for both songs written, we might find a disparity there. In other words, while the lyrics are very clear-cut to the battle hymn of the Republic, the historic circumstances for which they were written may not be so clear-cut. Have you ever wondered, let's just take the Civil War, for instance, in our own history. You know, there were Christians fighting on both sides. You know, there were great theologians that were the counselors and cabinet members of leaders in the South and the Confederacy. You know, there were generals on both sides of that war that cried to their Lord Jesus Christ for help in that campaign. Have you ever wondered what it would be like or ventured to put yourself in the place of God hearing those prayers and wondering which side you would answer? You see, it's a little simplistic for us to pick a good guy in hindsight. It's a little short-sighted for us to read into history something that is very as clear-cut as the words of the hymn that perhaps both sides of the army sang. But what is far more difficult to discern is if you were born at that time and brother was fighting brother and family was fighting family and there were generals and presidents who were enacting policy to pit families against families and war was breaking out, ravaging war, ravaging the land. And scorched earth campaigns and direct violation to the Deuteronomy rules of war were taking place within the boundaries of this nation, its people against its own people. Do you see how the calling of discernment and relationship to the circumstances that we find ourselves in is much more difficult than just reading back into history and imagining who might be the good guys or the bad guys? But as we read the Word of God, it can give us criteria for assessing whether our cause is truly just. And this is what concerned David, I think, to no end, so much so that it became the theme of many of his psalms, theology and war. How do we know, how do I know that our cause is just? You know, we're going to be speaking as to a few examples, even as I launched into this one in the Civil War and our history to national concerns and civil and social concerns. But the question is even more pointed as we consider it for our own soul. How do we know that we are justified? Or more personally, how do we know that our desires, our goals, the things that we trust in, the things that we plan for, the way we engage in our different situations and decisions and difficult conflicting circumstances, how do we know that our cause is just? Because David, I believe, would be the first one to tell you that it's not enough to just sing a song while you're marching as to sin. You, if you are going to sing a song that glorifies the Lord, you better be doubly sure not to just greater besmirch His glory because what you are pursuing doesn't match the words to your hymn. And I'm afraid we live in circumstances today where Christianity is considered such a small margin and compartmentalized portion of our life that we maybe want to pursue many policies, support many candidates, or justify many conflicts without ever considering 
what is the basis for our actions and whether they ought to be pursued or not and to what end, in what way. And this, I believe, is where the Bible gives us great refuge and encouragement if we take it seriously and hold our own circumstances, both our national policy and our personal hearts, accountable to its terms. So let's endeavor to do that just a bit. First of all, consider, if you will, in the context of this psalm, that David has some philosophical assumptions about the nation, about the world that he lived in. For David, it was quite true that there were two kinds of people. There were two parties in any faction at any given time. There were those who were the objects of salvation and those who were the objects of wrath. In verse 1, David defines clearly that he has declared the people of God, when they are obedient to their God, are the objects of his salvation. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. Now, on this, this criteria, this framework, this label for this one faction, the good guys, if you will, follows through and provides a theme for verses 1 through 7. But then there's an abrupt shift as we see the second faction in verses 8 through 13. Your hand will find out, verse 8, all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. This is the other class, the other side, the other faction, and they are the enemies of God. They are those whom verse 9 declares the Lord will swallow them up in His wrath, and fire will consume them. They are objects of His wrath, whereas on the other side there's this remnant, there's His people, there's the redeemed, there's the saved, there's the born again. They are the objects of His salvation. And the great question for all of history and for all eternity, the question around which the elders before the throne and every saved soul will worship the mighty Lamb for all eternity, the question which will haunt and torture the souls of everyone condemned in hell is what are the terms that would justify one to be in the camp where he could firmly, confidently say his strength is in the Lord and in His salvation He greatly exalts. And then His next question He ought to consider is, do my actions, do my values, do my decisions also line up with the salvation that has saved my soul? I would submit to you in Psalm 21, both of these were true. David relied on his King of Kings for his personal salvation, but he also was making a clear case and displaying it before the people why his cause in war was just also. Now, David does not assume that every situation that we're faced with is going to, be, is going to give us as humans, with faulty discernment and short-sighted thinking, not beyond omniscient, is not going to, every circumstance is not going to provide us an easy answer for which side of the fence it falls on, whether it's something that should be pursued in light of God's glory or rejected or handled in a certain way. However, What David definitely affirms is that there is no authority vacuum in the universe. In other words, God did not leave any man at any time on the earth to his own devices. You know, there really, he hasn't very, he clearly spoken in this regard, so this decision is up to me. 
or uh, salvation, religion, and, the, and that kind of messianic language is for a part of your soul and your thinking that should be reserved for church, but don't carry it through into the other sectors of your life, like your job, your economics, your education, your schooling, or the standards of value that our society has, or government, or law, or ethics, or any of those types of situations that places demand on us on a day-to-day basis. For David, he would utterly reject such a thinking. That is, if there was any category of life or decision-making, any conflict, any interest in anything that has an authority vacuum waiting for someone who is not God of all the universe to establish himself as authoritative in that realm. If God is king of kings, then there is no king that has veto power over him. If he is Lord of lords, then he has ultimate total authority. His ultimacy governs all things at all times and in all ways. But that doesn't mean it's always clear to us what we should do. Now, as we have these relative to our idea and discernment, ambiguous situations to deal with, men do try to rush into that authority vacuum and fill it. They are those in Psalm 21, 11, who plan evil against the Lord. Though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. What does this indicate to us? Well, it indicates to us that in God's latent providence, if you will, that term latent refers to there's a present capable uh, energy there or source there. It's developing. It's not yet visible. It's not so obvious or active. And it's not necessarily in that moment seen by us as symptomatic. There's a power there underneath the surface that is always real, it always is ultimate, and it always will have the last word. But there are these times in God's long-suffering and providence where men feel like they have the freedom to, with impunity, develop their own plans for how to deal with problems. So during these lulls, if you will, between God's declarative word and that moment of the day of the Lord, and when His judgment comes, that period of time you will see evil men rising up and planning things as if they themselves could fill that power vacuum that they perceive is there. Now, in the end, their divisiveness and mischief proves foolish. They do not succeed And they are ultimately conquered, if not in this life, certainly in judgment day. But the progress of nations and kingdoms and empires that rise and fall is directly directly uh, correlated to men trying to fill that power vacuum and even in time and space and in this life, real judgment coming upon them. Now, David recognized that these were the situations on the ground that he faced daily. But what he sought so hard to do was to be on the right side of providence, if you will. He wanted to be counted among the faithful who would stand with and for the Lord's glory and against the enemies of his king. So that when God intervened with dynamic interposition, when God intervened in real ways to bring down judgment, that he would be a tool in God's hand positively towards that end, and not one that would need to be struck down because he had stood against God's authority. How do we judge what side we're on? How do we judge whether anything 
whether it's a war campaign we're considering history, whether it's a current policy of our government now, whether it's a decision we're ma- we have to make for a big you know, lifestyle or life change in the future, like maybe a job we're considering, where to go to stu- school, what to study, who to marry. I don't care what it is. Everything ought to be considered in the light of theology. And as we hold our decision-making and challenging situations accountable to God's terms to justify which side of the faction we're on, we can hopefully trust, we can trust that the Spirit will lead us in that regard, give us wisdom and assurance that we are on the right side of providence, if you will. I'll just want to give you very briefly a few terms that I isolated to summarize how David judged that his cause was righteous. How do you judge that your cause is righteous? Well, first of all, he affirmed, pardon this word, a cyclopedic salvation. Encyclopedia, everyone knows what that word means. Just take the adjective form and then attach it to salvation. Salvation as a concept for David was not limited to his soul. The implications of his Savior and his Messiah and the Lordship of his God extended far beyond the worship service that he would have from time to time where they would sing a song like this. He affirmed and endorsed and and acted on a comprehensive view of God's lordship over all of life. Today, such is not often the case, especially among our leaders and often among our thinking as Christians. Everything, the the, uh, statement is, the truth is, the message of Psalm 21 is, Everything ought to be subsumed under the glory of the Lord and His salvation. In the strength, in your strength, O Lord, the King rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly He exalts. Even this military campaign that He was celebrating at this particular time. These days, we have other versions of salvation and other answers for problems. We, for instance, trust nuclear bombs to save us nationally. If our arms reserve far eclipses any other nation, we feel safe. Therefore, in the proliferation of powerful arms is our national salvation. There are many policies that reflect such a hope. And there are many attitudes, there are many heart conditions within the soul of, I think, even Christians, myself guilty at times, that hope for the future of America depends on the size of our war machine. We must be so careful to, to never say that any aspect or hope for the future of our salvation is outside of the terms and conditions that Jesus Christ implies and applies expl- explicitly through His Word. There is no salvation in a nuclear bomb. There is no salvation in a superior war machine. We look to the Federal Reserve to save our economy. We look to insurance to save our health. We look to Social Security to save the elderly. We look to Federal Emergency Management Agency, and and there are so many acronyms that if you took the 26-letter alphabet with all its possible permutations, I think there would be just slightly more than the government agencies that have absolutely polluted and proliferated this land. Why? Because everyone claims to be a means of salvation for something. Could it be that we have placed our salvation in other things besides Christ and rushed to fill that so-called power vacuum with things of man's doing 
which put the ethics of God's word aside, never mind his righteousness, and seek to come, come up with answers that declare ourselves as an authority over him. We seek to have, as I said, FEMA save us from disasters, government welfare save our poor from risk and death, green technology will save the earth, humanitarian aid will save the nation of Haiti and Africa and every other third world country, democracy will save the Middle East. You remember the Arab Spring, this great spontaneous life-giving resurrection of human rights that was blossoming and growing out of the fertile soil of that center of the earth that had been so plagued by conflict, but now is going to explode into a miracle of civilization. That was basically the attitude of our politicians as they were celebrating with joy how democracy was going to be salvation for those people. Did you ever once hear the name of Christ exalted in that international campaign to set free those people from tyranny? Never once. It was always something else, something humanistic, something rushing in to fill the power void. Salvation was never spoken of as the fruit of the soul changing his surroundings when he worships a new God. No, it was always some version of polytheistic humanism. And this is over and over again emphasized in our day. And maybe at the very end of that list, you know the list where bailouts will save companies that are too big to fail and Fortune 500 companies can save our uh, investment portfolio. Maybe at the very end, someone might say, if they're a confessing Christian at least, oh yeah, and Jesus saves our soul. What is wrong with that list? What does that attitude, if it's anything close to the truth, reflect of a perverted worldview? It's simply this that we don't consider Jesus as Lord of all. This is not what David did. David considered that he, though king, and in charge of his people, answered to a higher authority. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation how greatly he exalts. Notice though David was called and commissioned to wage war, he didn't move so forward with confidence, having obtained a well-fed, well-trained mass of troops and having the factories produce multiple chariots. And when he finally got all this stuff in order, he said, now is time. Let's move forward with our army. Having assembled a superior force, we will be victorious. No. When it came to finally divvying out the judgment, David takes no credit for it and certainly places no faith in horses and chariots. He says in verse 8, Your hand, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Have we moved forward in confidence in anything and held it to the standards of just cause to such high degree that we can say, with the biblical confidence of David that it was not our hand that tried to save us, but we were being obedient to the hand of God in whatever endeavor we were involved in. Now, this language reminds us again of the previous psalm. The two really do go together. Verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. This point was further developed in the next psalm in verse 11. Though they, that is the enemies of God, the wrath-deserving, those who do not consider that He has a cyclopedic, a comprehensive plan for salvation, they plan evil against you. They devise mischief. They will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. There is no salvation. There is no other name by which man can be saved. 
every challenging situation, every thought, word, deed, and decision demands that we revisit the source and grounding of our faith and truth in the Word of God in light of our Savior and His kingdom rights before we move forward in anything. David believed this and proclaimed it. And in uh, our point number two, we see a further uh, building on this idea. He says in verse two, you have given him, that is the king, his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Now we know again in context that when David said he was given his heart's desire and the request of what he spoke, that this was not anything and everything this autonomous king wished on a whim and on his own will for himself, for his own self-serving ends. If we go back to Psalm 19, which we covered recently, the heart of Psalm 19:14 is evident, I think, contextually in qualifying Psalm 21 too. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We have no business praying for salvation in any regard unless that desire and in that application from the confession of our mouth and the meditation of our heart is not self-serving, but God-serving, Christ-serving, glorious, serving for a higher purpose, placing its weight in the strength of the King above us, not in the fear of what it presents to our soul or our well-being. There's a higher calling here. David says, you give him his heart's desire after he has prayed, if you will, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. He says, you have not withheld the request of my lips. He, David is celebrating that his prayer was answered. What prayer? The prayer that came in the context of a rightly requested, uh, when it was rightly requested, when he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. These verses also remind us of the New Testament version and really Jesus' own direction to us in prayer that we ought to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. So we could add to cyclopedic salvation conditional favor. When David was asking for salvation and deliverance from his enemies, he was asking according to his heart's desire and the request of his lips, both of which were conformed to what God would have him confess and what God would have him desire. Number three, concurrent grace. When the, prayer, when the prayers were answered and David was met with blessings, he did not affirm that it was his idea or that he spontaneously through a great prayer meeting and just a really long, long beseeching of the kingdom of God was able to come up with them of his own idea and accord. He says in Psalm 21, 3, for you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. The idea here, in that language, you meet him with rich blessings. Other translations in the past have rendered it those blessings that have gone before or preceded him. Unawares, David unaware that the Lord had marched before him, now as he was following him, began to step into works that Christ had prepared for him to walk in, as it were. It's a grace that prepares and goes before is prevenient and makes the valleys high, lifts them up and brings down the mountains and makes straight paths for the servant of the Lord. You have set a crown of fine gold upon his head. Notice David's language here is carefully chosen. He doesn't mind the gold and forge it and commission it. No, this is something that is seen in sovereign terms. 
when David goes forward and assumes the mantle of authority, he doesn't do so on his own resume, grounds, or merit. His authority is justified in his acknowledging and walking in obedience to the fact that God anoints kings and sets them in authority. It is God who sets up kings and tears them down. David knew this very intimately. He, the least likely of all his brothers, let alone everyone else in the whole land, was anointed as the youngest to be the king. He, he was the most likely to be destroyed and never assumed the throne because he was really the object of the wrath of the king at the time who was chased as a fugitive for years and years. But when David finally did assume the throne and that crown was placed on his head, he of all kings under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and his experience knew that this was something that he did not acquire as a work of his own. Instead, it was a calling that he was required to conform to. This was something that he ought to pursue concurrent with the grace that went before. When God calls a nation to walk in his footsteps so that he might richly bless, he does so not according to the whim and prayer and shifting and changing ethics and progressive sense of right and wrong due to man's wisdom changing all the time because he has different challenges in front of him. No, the nation must first confess that God's word will never change. It is authoritative and it is a fixture for truth and righteousness for all of time. Only when they start there and realize that there is no hope for salvation, there is no hope for ultimate success, unless they walk in that concurrent grace, that which God is already pleased to bless. There is no ground for praying, God bless America. There is no ground for praying, God bless America, outside of the context of a psalm like, 20, or like number 21. Unless the nation is walking in concurrent grace, is walking in footsteps that are ordered by the Lord, unless the word is a lamp in some regard to its policy and a light unto its cultural feet. There is no ground for praying that prayer. It remains empty until repentance is forthcoming. So let's start there. Let's pray that we would recognize God's concurrent grace that we ought to align ourselves with, and let's pray that we would understand His goodness and His righteousness. And before we agree to another war around some patriotic pep rally, before we decide that we are the good guys arbitrarily the next time, and it could be tomorrow at the rate things are going, let's ask the question of the Word of God. Could it be that our cause is not just because we care nothing of God's grace and God's work and God's setting the crown on the head, delegating the authority and meeting us with rich blessings along the way, not producing them out of thin air according to our every whim and desire? And so you see here, there is a broad spectrum of application for nations, yes, and it's very difficult for me not to make these applications because all the while I know that David was himself a king and he refers to himself in the context here as the king of a nation. But we can also glean great application for our lives personally. Is our cause just? Is this something that God would have me do? Or am I asking for a blessing to something that is by its definition and nature antichrist in some way? And Lord, I pray for wisdom and direction and discernment to see those things. Number four, covenantal promises. What was the criteria that David judged that he was a good guy, if you will, that the campaign and the future and the policies of his nation 
were ones that were going to produce salvation. David says in verse 4 that he, speaking of himself as king, asked life of you, speaking to God, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. And I think here David has in mind the covenantal promises. David was promised to have one of his own, his lineage, ruling over Israel forever. And we, of course, see this promise fulfilled in Christ. But when David knew by the promise that God had given him that he was, it wasn't that he was important in and of himself, but he was privileged to be in a lineage of a much bigger picture that would culminate in the Son of God who would rule and reign forever, the Son who ascended into glory after he was resurrected and now sits at the right hand of the Father. When David was encouraged and led forward in prayer of faith and believing, I'm certain that he relied on those covenantal promises. He knew that because he had faith and trust in God, somehow he would be redeemed, and but also that his kingdom would have true purpose to glorify God. When he asked of life for God, when there was the cry, long live the king, it was not an empty ode. It was not just a bunch of people that were yes men in the court shouting for favor with the king when they said, long live the king. Oh, I want to be important, get a good you know, smile from the king, or maybe he'll bestow something upon me. No, in the context of this psalm, when people said, long live the king, they were saying, long live Christ. Only let the king of this nation succeed inasmuch as his purposes are aligned with the terms of covenant promises. Only as long as he is obedient to the higher authority. Only as long as his strength is drawn from the king of kings. And in as much as he does, then yes, let that life-giving, sustaining, protecting power fill us as a people and fill us as individuals. Also, there's this sense of cooperative glory. And this really overlaps these two concepts we've just covered. His glory is great in verse 5, through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. And so in this verse, it further tells us that the glory that David was privileged to have and to shine through him inasmuch as his rule was wise and his exploits were victorious, he did not take the credit for it, but recognized that his glory was great only through the Lord's salvation. He was not an autonomous source of glory. He was not the source. He was simply the conduit or the reflection. There's a confident joy that David rests in and encourages the worshipers to make their source of confidence as well. Verse 6, you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. So when should the people say, hurrah, we are victorious, we have won? When should they smile and dance in the streets? When should they break out the timbrel and harp and song? They should do so when the presence of God was evident in their people. Not when they felt by the measure of proportional political influence and a great moral machine or prosperity that they were a dominant force in the land. No, but when God's presence was pleased to dwell among them. Similar to the time in Israel's history where the fire was there by night and the cloud would rest there by day. God's evident presence, His Shekinah glory was present with His people. And even when the temple was commissioned, there was a center of God's glory evident in their people. And probably the saddest day geographically, or at least in their experience of all of Israel, was when that glory was departed. It didn't matter how many alliances the kings felt that they could trust. 
because of the powers around them that agreed to protect them against another king at that time. If the presence of the Lord had left, it didn't matter. Their alliances, their strategic uh, ability to protect themselves, it didn't matter. Their own glory, riches, wealth, or war, abilities, or powers. All that mattered was that the presence of Almighty God had left. David wishes for his people's joy and confidence to be tied to favor with the Almighty God. To never feel safe if conditions are such that God would not be pleased to dwell here among us. And finally, constant security. Verse 7, for the king trusts in the Lord that through the steadfast love of the Most High, he will not be moved. And here's this element, this long-standing element of steadfast love that we see. We're reminded in chapter 20, verse 7, again, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But here's that steadfast element by contrast that we as His people, as His warriors ought to for all time trust in. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. His steadfast love. Whoever trusts in that name, the name of the Lord Most High, the name of the Lord our God shall not be moved. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall never be moved. As I mentioned before, for David, there were two factions in this campaign. There are really only two kinds of people at any given time. Despite these apparent lacks and lags and times of God's long suffering, it would be horrible and wrong, destructive and deceptive to consider that there was indeed a power vacuum that we of our own accord could fill. No, never, never will it be said at any time in history, not in David's time, not in our own. We have not outlived the worth and value of the Bible. We have not entered into a new era of society where these rules no longer apply. Quite the contrary, we need them now if it could be said more than ever because the challenges are very great. And in today as it was then, in the individual and collective peoples, there are those who trust in chariots and there are those who trust in the name of the Lord our God. There are those who thus become without repentance the objects of God's wrath and those who become by His grace alone the objects of salvation. And now we note this contrasting parallelism. In verse 1 of chapter 21, we read these confident words, O Lord, in your strength the King rejoices, in your salvation how greatly He exalts. But then it's like the polar opposite circumstance that we find ourselves in if we take refuge in anything other than our Most High. For these, for the wrath-deserving, it says in verse 8, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. And we go through the list and we see that the factions are stark and there's a bifurcating effect that the Word of God gives so that our discernment might cause us to search our own heart and our actions and our applications to see what side we fall and to ask the Lord that we could boldly sing a battle hymn of the Republic and our applying the terms of His Lordship through our lives lived. Verse 9, you will make them a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath. That phrase, when you appear, speaks of a parallel concept in Scripture, the day of the Lord, the day of reckoning, the sure day of His judgment that everyone who follows and lives according to His will ought to keep, if not in the back of His mind, in the forefront of His mind at all times. That although it seems that the wicked prosper for a season, the Lord's judgment is decisive and eternal. Although in His common grace He brings water, He brings rain on both the wicked 
and the just, there will come a time when an eternal fam- famine will be struck on the wicked and the righteous will bloom forever before the throne of the Almighty God with roots drawing deep from the waters, from the living water that Jesus prophesied was there available for the Samaritan, for the Jew, and for the Gentile to the woman at the well. But without that, there is nothing but destruction, akin to that that Sodom and Gomorrah incurred for their long-standing perversion and their societal metastasization of sin that caused them to be so deserving of that fire and brimstone from heaven. You will destroy their descendants, it says in verse 10, from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. And again, the contrasting parallelism is stark. Whereas David had this promise that he would always have a king from his lineage on the throne forever, not so for the wicked. It doesn't matter how many sons they have. You know, we think of the dynasty of Herod at Jesus' time. I think of the first, first sermon that my son Jack preached, the recompense of the wicked, where he brought up the point that there were actually two Herods. At the time, there were far more, actually. You know, in the wicked plans and schemes of evil and in devising of mischief that Herod sought to, you know, ensure his kingdom. He had as many children with as many uh, parties as possible, and of course, breaking all these rules. And when John the Baptist called him out as an adulterer, promptly his head was delivered to him on a platter. But in the end, John the Baptist and the word and the king that he announced rules, and Herod is confined to the dustbin of the fools of history. There is no way that the evil will continue, even generationally, in any successful way because God will destroy even their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. And that's the fearful situation, the judgment we deserve if we find ourselves outside of the good graces of our Heavenly Father. And we can go on and see this contrast as we continue through. But let me just close with um, this point. I believe there's a theme in Psalm 21, and perhaps a sentence to describe it would be as follows. In light of the scope of God's power to save the good and to judge the evil, what is the grounds of our justification? And the answer would be the Word of God. So stated again, in light of the scope of God's power to both save the good and to judge the evil, the Word of God alone is the grounds of our justification. We see in this final verse, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. What strength and what power does David refer to? Well, certainly he refers to the strength and power that is manifest in him saving those who are aligned with this uh, positive will. And then on the same hand, he's referring to the strength and power that's evident in his blazing oven judgments on those who have set themselves opposed to the will of God and have planned evil and devised mischief. This, saints, is the scope of God's power. His glory will be seen and evident by reflection or by contrast, whether it's in the utter and total destruction of the wicked or the utter and total salvation of the righteous made so only by the blood of Christ, this is the scope of God's strength and power. In light of the scope, the staggering scope, the fearful scope of God's power to both save the good and judge the evil, we must ask, what is the ground of our justification? We better ask this question carefully. 
in relationship to anything we plan to do? How do I know that this cause is just? And then elevate and use as our standard the immutable, eternal, immortal Word of God. Do we trust in salvation found in Jesus Christ alone? And we can see now as we funnel these applications down to the very personal level, our heart is really where the root and stem of all this is ultimately concerned. We can ask the same question, Lord, in light of the scope of your power and strength to both condemn the wicked soul to hell and to save the righteous soul to heaven. What is the grounds of my own justification? And for anyone who loves the gospel in this place, the answer that's rushing into your mind and heart, even as I say it, is the blood of Jesus Christ alone. The Messiah that would be in the lineage of David himself who would come and would be born of a woman and would be slain and crucified and would incur on his shoulders, on his brow, in his side, in his hands and feet, this all-consuming fire of God. It, it is safe to say that on the cross for all of his righteous elect, the Lord swallowed up the wrath in his Son. The Lord will swallow those up who fall outside of that propitiatory sacrifice, powerful to save in that final day. But for those who trust in the strength of their King, Jesus, for those who take refuge in the salvation that He has wrought, and in that hope they greatly exalt, for those, the Lord God, our salvation, Jesus Christ, has swallowed up in his own blood and flesh the wrath and the all-consuming fire that their sin deserved. If we love and apply the implications of that truth, that very simple but powerful gospel message across the board, if we preach a comprehensive salvation and now seek to hold to scriptural terms everything that connects to that fundamental restructuring of our life and soul, we will begin to preach the gospel in new and variant ways, ones that we haven't even tapped into yet. We will be able to, if God has called us, whether to be a pauper, a prince, or a king, or a servant to our family, or at a work, or in an educational field, or what have you, it doesn't matter exactly where He's placed us as far as the status of man is concerned, we'll be able to have influence like David. As we do what we're called to excellently, we can do so concurrent with the grace that He gives. We can rely on Him and show it by our decisions, by our motivation, by our zeal, and by our words, by the words of our mouth, and the testimony of our heart that we rely on the strength of the Lord. And in His salvation, we greatly exalt. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for the great testimony of Your Word applied that we have in these pages before us right now. Lord, as You have been so candid to reveal the heart and the mind and even the actions and policies of your King David, we take such encouragement from this text knowing that you will teach us and instruct us. Lord, and it's amazing that you've recorded these words to disciple a people like us. Though we are born thousands of years apart from the man whose words we're now reading, we trust the same unchanging truth. And thus these words will endure for all of time. So Lord, I pray that we would be conformed to them. I pray, Lord, if there's any who stand in need of your hope of salvation in the first place in this room, that they would not rest until they see themselves rescued from the just wrath their sin deserves. But for those who have, Lord Jesus, 
have that assurance of salvation placed in the blood of Jesus Christ alone. I pray that you would cause us to live in a comprehensive vision for our own salvation, neither trusting in nor endorsing any other power to save than our Lord Jesus Christ alone. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.